You know, when we say that someone is the life of the party, we're, we're saying that they, they bring something to the gathering. They, they bring a little extra, just a little extra something-something to, to a gathering and a, and a social setting. And it's, it's something that really goes beyond just, just a feeling, that because they are there, the conversation flows a little more freely, the connections are made a little more effortlessly, the laughter flows a little, it's a little freer, a little more honest and, and from the belly, if you will, because of the life of the party. Now, I, I need you to understand also that next weekend, we are going to take this Easter concept, the life of the party, and, and begin a new message series called The Life of the Party that explores and explains how to make this a reality, not just on Easter, but every single day in every single situation and setting and circumstance that we find ourselves. So I hope that you'll make it a priority and make the time to, to gather with the family of faith next weekend as we start this series, Life of the Party. But on this Easter Sunday, I think it's important that we make a critical distinction about what we are not talking about when we talk about the life of the party. We are not talking about that, that person who is in the room maybe trying too hard. I think we've all been in situations and social settings where, where there's been a, a guy who's, who's maybe trying too hard to, to dominate the conversation or maybe to impress a woman who's in the room or, or maybe... And I hate to say that it's a guy, but let's be honest, it's usually a guy. I mean, women can do it, but it's usually a guy who's trying too hard. Maybe he's had a little too much help being the life of the party, if you know what I'm saying, and I think you do. But we're not talking about that. That's never a good thing. We're also, we're not talking about the reality TV star who gets paid to show up at a party so the guests can all kind of, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and say, hey, I was here at the same time at the same place. Aren't I cool? We're not talking about that kind of life of the party. We're talking about a life of the party that goes much deeper than that, a, a true life of the party that, that causes everybody in attendance to say, man, I'm glad I was there. It's something really kind of down in, down in your gut, maybe even at a soul level that says, I, I'm really glad I'm here. I, I want to be here. I need to be here. Easter is absolutely the, the declaration. It's the celebration of the fact that Jesus Christ is the life of the party of any circumstance, of any situation, any life that he is invited into. He brings that, that something, something that, that's hard to to grasp, it's certainly hard to define and explain, but it's just something about Jesus that makes everything he touches better, makes everything he touches healthier, stronger, more alive, more vibrant, and that is Easter. But there's a phenomenal irony attached to Jesus' life of the partiness, if, if we can make up a phrase. You see, Jesus is only the life of the party, because of his death. It's only because he died on Good Friday afternoon and then rose again on Easter Sunday morning that we can say he is the life of the party. Now, we refer to Good Friday only as good because of what happened on Sunday morning. We, we know, of course, that Jesus did in fact die 
on that Good Friday. We know for a fact that is absolutely irrefutable and beyond debate that Jesus Christ was a human being who walked the face of the earth. That This is not anything that anybody could intelligently argue against. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but yesterday, April the 15th, we marked 152 years to the day since the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It was 152 years ago yesterday that Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. by John Wilkes Booth. You, you can actually, you can still see the stovepipe hat that Lincoln wore to the theater the night that he was assassinated. Now, now nobody even debates that. That's a given fact of history. And the same thing is true about the life and death of Jesus. As a matter of fact, nothing has been documented historically more than the life and death of Jesus. Not only in the biblical record, but also by extra-biblical sources. One of them is a guy by the name of Josephus. Say Josephus. Okay, now wait a minute. I mean, this is the 1145 service. Y'all have been drinking coffee for hours today. So, so let, let's, let's, act, let's, say, let's say it like we mean it, all right? Say Josephus. There it is. That's what I'm talking about. Now, Josephus is a fascinating cat. He was a historian working for the Roman Empire. He was actually a Jew by birth working for the Roman Empire, recording the history of the empire. And yet even Josephus, writing at the end of the first century, between 90 and 95 AD, records the fact of Jesus' life. He, he mentions Jesus by name and even mentions the movement that Jesus began by name. And not only does he mention Jesus by name and the movement that he started, Josephus also mentions Pontius Pilate. Pilate as the Roman governor there of Judea where Jesus was crucified. Pilate, the one who, who authorized, who signed off on the execution of Jesus, is mentioned outside of the Bible in multiple multiple sources but it's it's easter sunday morning that, that we're most concerned with today it's easter that really provides the meaning that provides the meat not only of easter but of the christian faith itself in luke chapter 24 the bible describes those first moments there on that first easter morning and this is what the bible says in luke chapter 24 it says, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb. Can we take just a time out real quick? How typical is it that the women were ahead of the curve? I mean, how typical that the men, men, let me ask you a question. If you're married, guys, how many of you like me, you're, you're usually playing catch up with your wife. Let me just see a show of hands. I'm, I know I'm not the only one. And if you're not raising your hand right now, you're a fool. I'm, I mean, I'm giving you free points just there for the taking but anyway i digress the, very early on sunday morning the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared now that's that's really significant I, i'm going to get to that in just a moment but but let's keep going they were taking the spices they had prepared they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance so they went in but, everybody say but. but, just so you know, that is the most glorious conjunction ever placed in a sentence in the annals of human history. That is the biggest, biggest phrase turn pivot point that has ever 
ever been penned. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't find the body. Now, it, it, it would not have been uncommon in this day and age for the friends or the family of someone who had just died to prepare spices to use to prepare the body for final burial. It, it, they would bring spices and perfumes and oils to kind of stave off the effects of, of decomposition and decay that happens anytime somebody dies. But what is incredibly, incredibly uncommon, that it was these women who were bringing the spices. These women who were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, women who were so well acquainted with the Jesus movement. They were well acquainted with Jesus himself. They had heard him preach. They had seen him heal. They would have been intimately familiar with Jesus' promise to die but then rise again on the third day. But here they are on the third day and they're bringing the spices they had prepared. They're bringing the spices they had prepared, which tells us they weren't prepared for what Jesus had prepared for them. Now, it would be so easy for you and me with 2,000 years of distance and hindsight to, to kind of be not, I don't want to say judgmental, but judgmental. And be like, oh, womeneth, you of little of faith, how couldest thou prepareth the spiceseth and go to the graveth, expecting it to findeth the bodyeth? You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we look at that and we're like, why would they do that? They should have known. As fascinating as that is, I, I think, I know I have to admit that that posture, that, that sense of expectation, unfortunately for me, may be all too familiar. How, how many days, how many, how many Sundays do we get up and expect the same old, same old? How frequently do we wake up and expect the expected rather than the unexpected that God has promised? How frequently do we expect Sunday morning just to be another day? You know, we'll maybe go to church and cross that off the list unless, you know, unless the kids have a game or there's a competition out of town or, or we get a better offer or brunch looks really tasty. Instead of remembering the promises of God, instead of remembering God's promise that he will be present in the midst of the praises of his people, instead of remembering that God promises to do exceedingly more than all we could ask or imagine, and to him there will be glory in and through his church throughout all generations so that we'll see kids discover the reality and the truth and the promises of God and make that faith their own as we, the church, the body of Christ, rally around them and create and provide and become that, that family of faith that he's called us to be. Man, I get what it's like to wake up and expect the expected. But I think we expect the expected and we miss the unexpected. We miss the promises of God when we fail to remember how the story proceeds. Remember what happened? Yes, they brought their spices. But when they got there, they went into the tomb, but they did not find the body. 
They didn't find the body. I want you to tell your neighbor with passion and enthusiasm right now, like it's Easter morning, they didn't find the body. Now, this is a massive deal. Let me, let me make sure that you don't miss this. Because Easter hinges on the body of Jesus. Easter, not just Easter, every fiber of the Christian faith hinges on the body of Christ. Now, the Bible says that the women went into the tomb, and for us in, you know, 2017, that that seems kind of weird, because when we think of a tomb or a grave, we think of a a long, narrow hole in the ground, and and we're like, what? But but you got to understand, in this day and age, in this area of this part of the world, tombs were typically just caves that, that people could walk into, lay the body down, and then they would roll a massive stone in front of it to kind of keep the body and the smell and the odor and everything there in the cave. And we actually have a representation of what this tomb would have been like in the city of Jerusalem today. Uh, we've got a picture I want to show you of the garden tomb. This is a current picture. We will actually see this tomb on our tour of Israel in November. As we take a group who's going, there's information in your program, but this is the garden tomb. Archaeologists are pretty sure that this is not the tomb of Jesus, but it's very similar. It's very close in location to where the tomb of Jesus would have been. But you'll notice, look at this picture. There's something that, it, it looks like a curb right there in front of the tomb. That is not there for parallel parking. That is actually a little trench or a trough that the massive stone would have been set in and then able to roll down into place to cover the opening to the tomb. That that stone would have been somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 pounds. And so when these women arrived at the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. And when the stone is rolled away, the first thought they have is, where's the body of Jesus? Because we saw him hung on a Roman cross. We saw him die day before yesterday on Good Friday afternoon, and they walked in, but they didn't find the body. They, they didn't find the body, which is not only the thing that Easter hinges on. It's not only the thing that, that the Christian faith hinges on. I would suggest to you on this Easter Sunday morning that Everything that matters in life hinges on the body of Christ. Everything that matters in life, no matter where you are spiritually, no matter where you are in your journey this weekend, everything comes back to the body of Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian on this Easter Sunday morning, for you, for me, everything hinges on the body of Christ. The fact that they've never found the body, the fact that they didn't find the body on that first Easter Sunday, that tells us we need to leave our spices at home. We don't have to worry about preparing for decay and decomposition and rotting. We need to prepare for life 
We need to prepare and expect the unexpected. We need to expect a fresh and a new move of God. We need to expect God to fulfill his promise to be present in the praises of his people. We need to expect that he expects us to be the body of Christ, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and the voice of Christ in this world that is literally dying for God that needs the presence of God in everything that we do and everywhere that we go. We are the body of Christ, period, all the time. End of story. Every time. This is our job. This is our privilege to be the body of Christ. But it's not just for Christians. You see, it's not just for Christians that the body of Christ matters because if you're not a follower of Jesus and in a room with this many people, this many people watching online, I I would guess, I wouldn't bet, of course, because I'm a pastor, but I would guess some of you are not yet followers of Jesus. Some of you are, are here maybe kicking the tires and trying to figure out if this thing is legit. Some of you may be here just because somebody guilted you into coming to church on Sunday, on Easter Sunday morning. That's whatever your motivation is. We are honored that you are here. But I want to, I want to lovingly and grace, gracefully and kindly challenge you. I want to, I want to challenge you to confront the fact of the body of Jesus, the fact that He died, dead. And the fact that they didn't find the body. Not not just the women who went there first, but in 2,000 years, no one, no one has ever found the body. No one has ever produced the remains of Jesus, which is significant because if it had ever happened, it would mean the collapse of Christianity it would mean that Jesus had, in fact, not outdueled death. That he had, in fact, not outgraced the grave. It would mean that Jesus had, in fact, actually died and stayed dead. That Jesus would have been just another guy. Just, just another teacher. Just another spokesman. But you have to confront the fact. You have to, you have to have the intellectual integrity. You have to have the courage to confront the fact that they didn't find the body. John Adams is one of our founding fathers of our nation. And as such, he was a child of the Enlightenment. That, that the sudden rise and surge of reason over everything else. This is what John Adams wrote about facts. John Adams says that facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Whatever whatever our wishes, whatever we want to be true, Whatever, whatever the state of our 
the inclination of our passions. He's talking about our feelings. Which, by the way, isn't that how most of us make most of our decisions? Based on how we feel? We like to say, I considered all the facts, I'm a very rational person. And we do to some degree, but let's be honest, most of us make most of our decisions based on how we feel. But John Adams says, your feelings, your, your wishes, our, our wants are fine as far as they go, but we can never allow them to override the facts or the evidence presented to us. And the fact is that they didn't find the body. And so you've got to confront that. You, you have to address that. Jesus put a really fine point on this actually just a few days before he entered Jerusalem and was betrayed and tried and then crucified and then rose again. And he did so in the context of a deeply personally traumatic event for himself. The Bible tells us that Jesus had a close friend who died. His friend's name was Lazarus. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. And throughout his ministry, Jesus had spent a good deal of time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But but in this particular story, in this account, Jesus was not in the town where they lived. They lived in a little town called Bethany. Jesus was about a day, day and a half away on the other side of the Jordan River, the Bible says. And Lazarus became very, very ill. And so Mary and Martha, his sister, sent word to Jesus and said, Lord, come. We, we need your help. Lazarus is sick. You, you've been healing all these people that, that we don't even know, but here your friend, Lazarus, is sick. And, and it's fascinating to me that as you read John chapter 11, the Bible gives the very clear indication that Jesus took his time getting to Bethany. It wasn't like he heard about Lazarus being sick and got on the fastest camel he could find and then got there. He just kind of he kind of took his time. And I thought about that for a second because I wonder, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but, but have you ever gotten frustrated with God's timing? I mean, is there, I've never met anybody, I've never heard of anybody who's followed God for any amount of time who is a follower of Jesus, who hasn't gotten frustrated over God's timing and, 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 and wanted God to kind of pick up the pace. Have you ever said, Lord, if you're through teaching, I'm through learning. Let's go. And the Bible says when Jesus finally arrived in Bethany, he gets word that Lazarus has been dead for four days. For four days. And so Jesus goes to his sisters, to Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and, and, and he comes to Martha first. Now, I love me some Martha. This, this is a great part. I love that the Bible includes Martha. I can relate to Martha. Because Martha, in, in a very respectful way, kind of lets Jesus have it at this point. She, she says, now, Lord, so she addresses him as Lord. She says, you're God and I'm not. Now that we've got that out of the way, where were you? Where were you? If you had been here... He wouldn't have died. If, if you had been here, he, he'd probably be well by now. Lord, where were you? I'm so glad Martha's in the Bible. <laughs> I'm so glad because 
as much as I love Martha, what Jesus did next is even better. As much as I love Martha, I love me some Jesus because Jesus responded, as you might expect, perfectly. He wasn't offended. You know, if Martha had come at me and been like, hey, pastor, where were you? My brother would say, I'd be like, hey, Martha, let me tell you something. You don't even know what I've had going on. Just back off, sister. (laughs) Fortunately, Jesus plays at a higher level than I do. Jesus didn't get offended. As a matter of fact, did you realize there's not one account in Scripture of Jesus ever being offended? Not one. Isn't that a great example for us to follow? He got angry a couple of times, but he never got offended. I think that's interesting. And he didn't get offended at Martha's confrontation. He just just looked her in the eye, and he responded with perfect grace and perfect truth. And he said, Martha, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Lazarus will rise again? And she said, well, of course I believe that's what we've been taught our whole lives, that there there will be a day when all of the dead will rise again. I think he'll rise at that point, but Lord, I'm worried about right now. I'm hurting today. He's dead because you didn't get here in time, and I've seen you heal people from a distance, and yet you didn't choose to heal my brother, the one you said was your friend. I'm worried about today. John chapter 11, this is what Jesus said to her. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Now that's important because Jesus is saying there, anyone who believes in me will live. And not only will they live in the here and now, they're going to live in the there and the then. You see, a relationship with Jesus is not just about eternity. It's also about the here and the now. It means that you begin to live the life that is truly life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. But but here's, here's where he puts this laser, laser fine point on it. He says, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do do you believe this? Because it's it's fine for us to talk about theory and and doctrine and the, the last days and the resurrection of the dead, but here's the bottom line. Does the fact that they never found the body matter to you? Do you believe Martha, do you believe, Mac, do do you believe, John, do you you believe, Leanne, do do you believe, Gladys, do, do you, do you believe, insert name here, do you believe, do you believe, because they never found the body. Those who go by the name Christian are called to be the body of Christ. Yes, we gather together once a week because we need instruction, we need inspiration, we need the accountability, but but it's also we are the body of Christ 
when we're not gathered together. We're the body scattered wherever we go. In the marketplace, in the home place, at school. But if you're not yet a Christian, do you believe? What do you do with the empty tomb? What do you do with the fact they hadn't found the body? I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And it's a sacred moment because God has something for every one of us. And I want to ask you to protect this moment, not moving around, not stirring for any reason and creating a distraction from what God wants to do in somebody's life. But if you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with God and chosen to believe in Jesus and to follow him, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. We would like to hand you the invitation that God has made to a relationship with Jesus. You don't have to to pass a test with a certain score or have perfect attendance at church for the next six months. All it takes is a surrender. It's actually very simple. That doesn't mean it's easy, by the way. It just means it's simple. It means a complete surrender to Jesus. The only one who would never take advantage of a surrender, the only one who has the authority to turn your surrender into a victory. The only one who outdueled death and outgraced the grave has the authority to forgive sin and to give you new life in him. If you've never stepped into that, then we invite you to pray just right where you're sitting. A prayer to a God who listens, to a God who loves. A prayer of beginning and a prayer of surrender. Just silently talk to God. He knows your heart and he'll hear you. Just silently say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I give you my life. I surrender to your grace, your love, and your truth. I confess my sin, all of it, and I claim your forgiveness, all of it. Jesus, I want to live in the here and the now as well as the there and the then. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. It's a sacred moment. And if that was your prayer and you meant it, then I want to make sure of a couple of things. Number one, I want you to know this is the greatest moment of your life. And you are in the perfect place for this moment. It's the perfect place because you're surrounded by by imperfect people. 
who love you and want to be a family of faith with you, want to help in any way that we can. And the best way that we can start that process is if you'll just take that Connect card that's in your program, fill it out, and indicate there, I committed my life to Christ this week. Then just hand it to one of our ushers before you leave. On your way out the door, just make a, a brief moment to make a personal connection. And just, just hand that card to them. But the second thing, I want to I make sure that you understand this is a once and for all moment for you. It's a once and for all beginning moment. You never have to pray that prayer again. You just need to remember that it happened, that this was your first Easter. That God did it, you responded, and it was real. And so as our heads remain bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment, if that's you, you prayed that prayer, then I want to ask you just to raise your hand quietly, but unmistakably, just raise your hand high above your head as you mark this moment both in your life and, by the way, in the life of this church. We've already got people celebrating for you because it matters that much. And as a church, we celebrate, we honor that. And our family tradition as a church is that you can go ahead and put your hands down because we're going to put our hands together to tell you welcome home. Welcome home.